This morning we're in Deuteronomy 6, and so you can look in your bulletin, I think it's on page 6, and find the scripture text there. And this is a passage that we as a church know pretty well ourselves. It's a passage that's been a part of our church's life and culture uh, since before I was around. And um, it's a passage that we recite together on baptism Sundays when we, we baptize a child or an adult, either way. And it's a passage that our children learn in worship training. So even now, as our kids are back in the hallways back there, they're reciting part of this passage and learning it, memorizing it even, uh, as they begin their worship training class. And it's a passage that is a fitting start for a new year together as well. These are the words of Moses as God gave them to him, spoken to the people of Israel some 1,400 years ago or so when they were on the verge of crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And these people have paused on their journey to look back so that as they look forward, they might see God's faithfulness more clearly. Moses has reminded them that 40 years before, God had given them the Ten Commandments as they stood at the foot of the mountain, and the people had been afraid of God's voice, so much so that they requested that Moses stand as their representative to God before them, and he did that. Moses was a type of Christ, prefiguring Christ, doing the very same thing for us. And so now, in these words, Moses summarizes God's words for us, beginning in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us. Would you help us, Lord, because apart from your help, we will not know what we're hearing. In fact, we won't even hear. Father, would you grant your spirit so that we might hear and see and believe your good news and that you might make us new yet even more today. We pray you would do that in Jesus' name. And for the sake of his glory, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have a children's book in our house, or we did years ago when we would read such things to our kids. It was a a children's book about a clumsy, troublemaking rabbit. His name was Buddy. Maybe you know this book that I'm talking about. Buddy's father had a big, beautiful nose, which meant that his father was a great sniffer. 
And Buddy's mother had big, beautiful teeth, which means that his mother was a great chomper. Buddy had big, beautiful ears, which meant that, well, it really didn't matter. Because Buddy didn't listen. He didn't use his big, beautiful ears to listen at all, even despite his parents' frequent warnings and reminders to him, just listen, buddy. They would say to him to go out in the garden and gather up a bucket of squash for the family, and he would come back with a basket of wash, dirty laundry. Or they would send him out to the garden for 15 tomatoes, and he would come back with 50 potatoes. Because he just didn't listen. Listen, buddy, they would say to him. And his refusal to listen led eventually to great trouble. Deuteronomy is kind of the listen, buddy story of the Bible. The people upon whom God had placed his favor have been wandering now. You you know the story, perhaps. They've been wandering now for years and stubbornly refusing to listen, even despite God's having delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and now they're about to arrive at the promised land, but God pulls them up short and says, listen, buddy, listen, church, hear, O Israel, pay attention, because what I tell you now, you've known before, these words, these commands, in fact, this call that I give you will shape who you become. Now, it's a new year, beginning of a new year. It's, it's always a good time to review and to renew priorities, right? Maybe you do that at this time of year, perhaps. Maybe you don't. It's a good time to do that. In fact, this week on Wednesday, we have a session meeting, and, and I've asked our, our elders, along with myself, that, that we all should gather together a few simple shepherding goals things that we simply recognize that we ought to be about doing in ways that we maybe could do them differently or better, some of them regarding family, you know, some of the ways that we ought to be shepherding our families, ways that we've been doing before, but maybe, maybe we could do it more effectively in this way this year. Some of these goals regarding the church, of course, what are some ways that we can more effectively shepherd the congregation that God has given to us to care for, you? And some of them, of course, regarding ourselves, What are the things that we need to do regarding ourselves? In other words, what about you needs to change? Because, in fact, you know that that word sums up God's plans for you, for all of us, change. Paul wrote about it in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he said, This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's God's will. That's His desire for you, is that you change, that you grow in Christ's likeness and become more and more like him. Moses now is 120 years old and he stands on the banks of the Jordan River and he says to his people, the Lord has delivered us from bondage and promised us heaven and in our following him, we will change. In fact, he's called us to it. And you see that calling, and that he's called us to corporate unity. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The obvious 
statement here that Moses begins with is that God is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we hear that and we maybe, maybe if you like me think of this, immediately begin to think of the Trinity. God is three persons, the same in substance and power and glory and yet distinct in some ways. God God is three persons and yet He's unified, He's one. And obviously that's true as we recognize from Scripture, but that's actually really not Moses' point here. Hebrew grammarians, of which I am not one, suggest that this phrase, as Moses used it, is pointing to a different sense of God's unity. He's saying that the Lord, in all capitals here, meaning Yahweh, God's covenant name, the Lord, Yahweh, is one, meaning that There is only one Lord. There is only one Yahweh. There's not another one. Of all the little L lords that are out there, none of them are Yahweh. There's only one of those. And that may seem obvious to you and to me, being in our kind of Dallas Christian culture and churched people and such. But it was not necessarily obvious to the Israelites at this point in their history. Believe it or not, they were only 40 years out from 400 years in Egypt, remember? A country in which they had been enslaved for centuries, a country that was thoroughly and broadly polytheistic, a country in which gods were seen in every part of nature and acknowledged and worshipped. That was the the culture out of which they came, polytheism. And so Moses wants to correct that and say, listen, Yahweh is one. There's only one Yahweh, and so polytheism is out. But not just polytheism, another big word for you, syncretism is also out. What's syncretism? It's a good word for you, a good SAT word. Syncretism is simply the merging of belief systems. It's, it's where you take one belief system and another one, and you say, well, I like parts of both, but I don't want to give up either one, and so I'm just going to kind of combine them and merge them together. That's syncretistic. And it's something that missionaries often had to struggle with and maybe even still do, but, but especially in the, the great missionary age, missionaries would go to, to, to cultures and bring the gospel there and made the mistake often of forcing people in other cultures to look like the missionaries and maybe assumed that that meant that they had converted them to Christianity. If they just look like us, then at least, you know, that's comfortable to us. But it's syncretistic because they would take some of their culture but keep their religion. And, you know, you might say, but but we don't do that. I mean, surely we don't. We're in the we're in the PCA, after all. We're in the Presbyterian and Reformed Church. We don't, we're not syncretistic. We're careful about those kind of things. But not so fast. You know, hold on. Because if you think about it, if you're a Christian, you also are many other things. You're an American. You're a United States of American. Or maybe you're a Canadian or Mexican or Korean or African. Whatever country of origin is... In your family's heritage, you are that. In addition, you also are white or black or brown or yellow. And in addition to that, you're also rich or poor or middle class or somewhere in between. There are all kinds of tribes 
with which you associate by your station in life. And the challenge of being a Christian and also being a part of different tribes and your stations in life is to recognize that every station in life which you occupy is subservient to the one God, to Yahweh himself. You know, for example, our setup crew on Sunday morning doesn't place an American flag on a pole behind the pulpit to decorate the stage. They don't do that for a couple of reasons. For one, there's not one back in our storage closet for them to do if they wanted to. And for two, it's not there because to place an American flag on the stage behind the pulpit as the word of God is being proclaimed is syncretistic. I mean, no disrespect for this wonderful country in which we live. It's wonderful in many ways and not so wonderful in many ways as well. But to place an American flag would be syncretistic because it would be, in a sense, to say we're Americans and we're Christians and we fit those two things together. To be an American is completely subservient to being one who belongs to the one Yahweh. You might say, well, we could fix that by just putting a flag of every country in the world up here and fill the stage with flags. That, too, would be syncretistic. It would still be that because Yahweh is bigger than any one country. He's bigger than any one tribe. There is no tribe that reaches the level of Yahweh's significance to us. And because there's only one Lord, there's only one people. Not only is God one, but we're one. Moses is preaching to all of the people together. He's gathered them together and he says to them, Hear, O Israel. He, he uses that covenant name with them, Israel, that name to which God had changed Jacob's name hundreds of years before as Jacob struggled literally with God. Israel is the one who struggles with, who engages with God. Israel is the church. Hear, O church, God is one and you are one. Moses goes on here and uses the singular pronouns you as he unfolds this verse, verse um, 5. He doesn't say, now y'all, to be a good Texan, y'all shall love the Lord your God with all of y'all's heart and all of y'all's soul and all of y'all's might. He doesn't say that. He says, you, singular. Now he's talking to a million people. He says, you, singular, shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might together. And he's talking not just to the people who are standing before him, but also to the generations to come. Because he says, you and your son and your son's son and so on, the generations of the church worship and obey as one. And so in a sense, what that means for us is that when you join a church like this one, you're saying that this is the part of the worldwide church with which I will unite and come together to love the Lord our God. And so we do this together. This is an expression of the worldwide church here in this little theater, even despite our various tribes, which take us in all kinds of different directions. We are one. 
Now, for us in this church, I think it means we have yet again, as we do every 12 months, another chance to move into a new year locked arm in arm together and moving forward together as one people. For the past three years, our church has had all kinds of transition. And some of you remember it and some of you don't. And that's part of the the thing here. You know, for 2012 and 13 and, and 14, it's been a season of transition for us, pastoral transition and membership transition as well. Just a couple of weeks ago, a family visited us from Kansas. They were former members of our church, and they moved away to Kansas for a job several years ago. And they came. They were in town. They came to visit on a Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago. And I saw them and greeted them and spoke to them. And they looked around the theater, and they said, Wow, there are a lot of new faces here. They were just recognizing the the transition of of all that has happened, even in the past few years. In a sense, they were recognizing that there are two tribes here among us in the theater. There are those of us who were here before 2012, and there are those of us who have come since 2012. And there's kind of a danger in that. There's kind of a danger in the sense that we associate with our tribe and don't empathize with the other tribe. Even though we're here in one place together, have joined one body together, and yet we're parts of different tribes. We're we're tempted to associate that way. But remember, there's only one Yahweh. And that means no syncretism. Your tribe is subservient to Yahweh whom you serve. Over the course of 2014, which ended a couple of weeks ago, we actually removed from our church membership roles a hundred people, plus children. Not that they left during 2014. They had left long before that, but we, we updated our membership roles and removed that many people. It was really kind of my goal to update that and, and put that wave of transition behind us, as it were, but we need to see that the call to corporate unity means commitment to one another, staying power with one another, that when things get difficult, we don't begin to look for a way out, but rather, how am I going to stay in the midst of this? Because we all walk through life in our own woundedness and difficulties and dissatisfactions. We have a chance to move into a new year living ordinary life together as a church. Living ordinary life together, recognizing the gospel and its joys, and recognizing our fallenness and its disappointments and its difficulties. We are one because the Lord has called us as one. As the church, though, we're also called to quantity time. Something else I think Moses suggests here in verses 6 and 7. He says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. There are a couple of important truths, I think, here for parents and for mentors of anyone, really. And one of those truths is this. You can't give what you don't have. That seems kind of obvious. 
you know, to belabor the point maybe, you can leave a last will and testament for your children or for those who you love and who are close to you. You can leave a last will and testament and designate in there that they are to receive $5 million when you die. Any of you can do that. But when you die, if you have 50 bucks in your pocket and that's all you got, your children ain't going to get what you didn't have. And that's part of Moses' point here. These words shall be on your heart. Now, you don't need to know Hebrew in order to stand the word, understand the word heart there, do you? You know exactly what he's after there. How do you get to the point that something is so central to the core of your being, so definitive of who you are, that you could possibly say that it's on your heart? Well, you get there by learning the second truth that's here, and that's this. Quality time comes about through quantity time. Verse 7 is an interesting verse. And it's a verse that Christians often, well, can, and we certainly do, take to mean family worship. Here are instructions for you to do in your home. You shall teach them, your children, diligently, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. And, and certainly this is helpful for family worship, but maybe it's a case of the right topic but the wrong text. I don't think that's exactly what Moses is after here, although, again, it is helpful, and family worship is an important grace for our church and for any church. But this verse is not pressing family worship. What's it pressing? It's pressing quantity time. It's pressing the truth of the fact that you begin to resemble the people and the things and even the ideas that you spend the most time with. Some of you have older grandparents. My grandparents, my mother's parents, died, both of them, in their late 90s. They had been married for 70-something years. And over the course of time, they began to look alike. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Not just their mannerisms and the words that they use, their vocabularies begin to mesh together. In marriage, syncretism is okay. They begin to mesh their lives together. They become one. In fact, over the course of decades, they actually begin to kind of look alike. And that's just the, the truth of it. You know, another example would be if you spend all of your time in a virtual world, as our world is tempted to do, looking into the screen all the time, you begin to resemble a virtual person. Because... You don't know how to relate to real people. You no longer know or understand how to deal with real souls and real emotions because your life is virtual and that's all that it is. The more time you spend with someone or something or some idea, the more you begin to look like it. Proverbs 23, verse 26 speaks to this. It says, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. I think this is a fascinating verse. It's an extremely helpful verse that completely corresponds with Deuteronomy 6. This is the way of God with us. Give me your heart and then let your eyes observe my ways. Give me your heart and then let's spend time together. 
watch what I do and become like me. This is the way of parents with their children, too, you know. One of my fears as a pastor, and I'm sure every pastor has this fear, and really every, every Christian adult parent should have this fear. But as a pastor, it's particularly this, that my kids hear me preach on a Sunday, and then they watch me live on a Monday. And I often wonder, you know, do those two things correspond to each other? Kids are very, very perceptive. They hear your words, and then they see, they observe your ways. And the thing is, when they're young, you have their heart. It's the way that God's made them. They will listen to anything you say. You are the world to them. When, when they're young, you, you have their heart. But as they grow, they watch your ways. So teach the gospel to them diligently, as Moses says here, but also talk of it when you sit, just in the normal course of life. Talk of it when you walk, when, when you're up and about going somewhere. Talk of it when you lie down at night. Pray for them when they go to bed. Talk of it when you get up in the morning. I mean, there's a lot of talking going on here, but I think the point is more than words. You have their heart now, but what are they seeing of your ways? In other words, quality time comes about by quantity time in a family, and also in your relationship with Yahweh. One of my friends and colleagues in RUF campus ministry served on a couple of different campuses where the demographic was such that a lot of kids came from PCA churches. And he reflected on his experience with those kids coming out of churches from our denomination. And he said, you know, the ones of those in particular who do well spiritually, and not all of them do, the ones who did well spiritually often were the ones whose parents just did the best that they could as their child grew up, talking to them when they sit, when they rise, when they walk and such, and somehow consistently trying to model the gospel to them in their lives. Now, not just quoting scripture, you know, you have to be careful with that. If you just throw a verse at everything that happens, then eventually they're just not going to listen to that anymore because they want to see it in your actions. But he said, it's these parents who consistently taught and modeled the gospel to their kids and then had fun with them and then actually enjoyed being with their kids and spent time with them, quantity time with them and, and had fun. You know, the gospel won't be on your heart if it's not on your calendar all the time. Quantity doesn't guarantee quality, but quality does not come without it. Moses' instructions then here take another step in that same direction, really, when he says that we're called to bear a kingdom identity. Verses 8 and 9. He says, you shall bind them, that is the words he commands, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now when Israel crossed over into the the Jordan River, into the promised land, they were establishing a new kingdom, as it were. In a sense, it was the establishment on a very, very small scale of the kingdom of God coming. They were establishing a new kingdom, and Moses says, When you do, you shall wear these words on your body and on your house. 
Now, this was not a new expression to the Israelites. Forty years earlier in the desert, after they had come out of Egypt, in Exodus chapter 13, you can read there, the, 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 well, actually, it's before they came out of Egypt, the plagues had come on the Egyptians. The tenth plague had come. The Passover supper had been instituted. And the, the Israelites were about to exit Egypt. And through Moses, God said to them, this Passover meal you are to observe ongoing in your family. This is our Lord's Supper as we think of it. And this is what the Lord said to them there. He said, And this meal shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. Now they were not going to wear the meal on their hand or on their head. They were going to put it in their mouth so that the the law of the Lord might be in their mouths. And this meal, this memorial, this sign would mark them with kingdom identity. It would mark them as God's people, as Yahweh's people, as they established a new kingdom, God's kingdom, in the land. And there are no shortcuts to wearing a kingdom identity. Thousands of years later, the Pharisees would make what are called phylacteries. You know that word from the New Testament? Phylactery was was a box. Literally, they'd make a box that they could strap onto their head. And inside that box, they would put scrolls of Torah, Scripture, so that they actually wore these words on their head in a box. In Matthew 23, Jesus has difficult words for them. He's speaking about the Pharisees, and he says to the people, he says, listen, the Pharisees, they, have, they sit on the seat of Moses. In other words, they have the law. So you need to listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. Because what they do is not what God is after. They wear boxes on their heads. But that's just a shortcut to kingdom identity. I have to tell you about our dog, Mosey. Mosey is a little furball. And she's a rescue dog from another family, from the SPCA and we got her when she was about four or five years old or so. She's potty trained, but not much else. And so our kids wanted to train her to, to do a little trick for a treat, you know, in the kitchen. And, you know, so you got a treat in hand. Mosey, sit. And Mosey learned how to sit. But then we wanted another step out of that. Mosey lay down to get the treat. And then Mosey would take the second step and she would lay down on the floor. So eventually we would have a treat in hand and say, Mosey, sit. She would sit. Mosey, lay down, lay down. Then she would get the treat. Mosey, sit. But she figured out she could take a shortcut. She knew she was going to have to lay down. So she just skipped the sitting altogether. Treat in hand. Mosey, sit. Boom. Flat on the floor. And we started to call it splat. So now the trick is Mosey, splat. Boom. She's flat on the floor. And she knows a treat is coming. She's a dog. She takes a shortcut when she can. Shortcuts look like outward obedience, but they're not. They totally surpass and bypass the intent of the command. If God's word is on your heart, then his kingdom is on your head. His kingdom is on the doorposts of your house. What does that mean? It means that At every moment of your life, you have a kingdom-building moment. These 
words on hands and on heads and on doorposts were meant not so much to be a proclamation to the neighbors around as you wear your Jesus t-shirt that now the neighbors all know that you're a Jesus freak. But rather, it's a reminder to you that you remember that every moment of your life is a kingdom-building moment. Every conversation that you have, every work project that you have in your daily work, every neighborhood gathering with your neighbors, you have a certain vocation. You have certain gifts and opportunities and abilities with which to build the kingdom of God at every moment of your life and your kingdom identity is the fact that God has marked you in such a way that you will remember. He's called you. And the things that you do every day matter because His kingdom is being established through you, through your words, through your actions. And therefore, for us as one church, through our work together, And that's an amazing opportunity for us. Moses goes on in chapter 6 to explain the generational effect of this. It's interesting. You don't have this in your bulletin. In verse 20, he goes on and he says to the Israelites, When your son asks you in time to come, days, years from now, your son's going to ask you, What's the meaning of these commands? And here's what you're to say. The Lord delivered us from Egypt. He brought us here and he gave us the path of His commands to walk in, and if we do it, it will be righteousness for us. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? If we do it, it will be righteousness for us. Now, we immediately hear that and we think it's kind of moralistic. You know, if we do it, it will be righteousness for us. Well, that's, of course, part of the purpose of the law to show us this is the path of righteousness and if in fact you do it well it would be righteousness for you deuteronomy is filled with commands to remember remember and with laws to obey but but don't misunderstand them obedience is important not because it gains something for you but because it proves something of you it proves that you've been delivered It proves that you've been made to change into the likeness of the one who made you even as you follow after his path. Listen, church. In a new year, new life and blessing won't come to us because of new programs or new efforts or new members or whatever else new, though you have to do something. No, it will come because Yahweh, The one Yahweh has led hearts out of bondage and reminded them of that, shown them that afresh, and then called them to hear His voice. So may we together as one listen to His word and hearing it, obey. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray that You would be at work in us, in our church, during this new year. Would you give to us new grace, even more of your grace, as we go into this new year together? Help us, Lord, to see how you're at work among us, how you're at work in us. Convict us, persuade our hearts, we pray, that 
we might believe, that we might see the ways in which we need to change as individuals, and therefore that how we might change as a body, as one, as a church, how we might grow more and more into your likeness to serve you in the ways that you call us to do. Help us to do that, Lord, that we might glorify your name in all that we do and say and think and believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.